have stories for us <laughs> before the podcast? Well, it's about the book, Cassandra. It's about the book. So guess... This book? Yes. Mm. The book that we're doing. Today? Yes. Heart of Darkness by Joseph Conrad. Heart of Darkness. 1899, so over 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. A novella by Polish-British novelist Joseph Conrad. Polish-British. He's Polish. And British. Originally, and a bit British. So I have a copy of this book, and it was because when I was in year 10, year 11, and you probably know this about me, I was um, in love with my English teacher. Yeah, it's one of the things we related about the first time we met. Were you in love with your English teacher? Yeah. Wait, no. Yeah. In high school? Or no, in uni. Oh, yeah. uh, that old dude. <laughs> that guy. Yeah. Anyway, I kind of wriggled my way into his life. Because, mm-hmm. you know, slippery like that. <laughs> into his, like, properly? Like, you're having coffee and... Oh, I wish, but there were some, like... Or were you just having, like soulful conversations at his desk after class as everyone filed out like in the Listen, movies both because mm? like i hope no one from high school listens to this <laughs> no it's too late and then like him and his wife are like how could you and it's like it was 10 years ago like, how could you? But he's anyway. jason bateman and juno here's the thing about like having a crush on older men when you are like a younger a female it's like you want them so badly to like you back and hook up with you and whatever mm-hmm. but when they do you if they did it lose respect for them absolutely like i am a child <laughs> i guess it's just you know yeah. that line well anyway so luckily for him he never did that well um just let me tell you. <laughs> here's the thing something in, juicy coming in year 10 because i'm very smart Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing year 11 English. Cool. Yeah. So I was in his class and he was like, damn, she's smart. I'm like, I know. Um, <laughs> I used to like go into class, like my head in a book and I'm just like, sorry, I was distracted. I was reading. <laughs> and then <laughs> therapy time. So, um, um, cause then of course I'd stay back. It started with me just like asking for extra like help with stuff. Cause I wanted to do well in English mm-hmm. and then, um, you know, cause a lot of lucrative careers begin with a passion in English. <laughs> like podcasting. Just take me out the back and shoot me like a horse with a broken leg. <laughs> shoot you to your face. You know it. Uh, Only reason I have a copy of this book is because I got close with my English teacher. Mm-hmm. And then I was just like, you know, what are your favorite books? And, are they? and then, and like, sometimes our emails would not even be about school. <gasps> I know. That's unprofessional. I got his phone number. We, like, texted a few times. Oh, my gosh. You were, like, almost there. (laughs) If you had the courage to follow through. No, because, listen, I was too young. Because I do... I heard that he once kissed a girl from our high school when she was, like, over 18, obviously. And they were both in the same, like, club. So, Wait, is he married? He is now. He didn't used to be. I remember he used to be, like, I believe in marriage. And now he's probably married. <laughs> Lizzie Bennett needs to oh, chill. Needs to chill. <laughs> um, anyway. Oh, he sounds like Peach. Was he hot, though? Oh, he was cute. Like, yeah. you know. You know. Non-threatening. He was, he was pretty cute. He was like a little hipster baby. And like, oh. this was when... 
Twilight had just come out and everyone was giving him shit because he had the same jacket as Edward Cullen unintentionally. I need to look at a picture now. It's like this gray jacket thing. Anyway. This is like a windbreaker? No. And then he kind of also looked like Jasper. Anyway, I'm fucked. The fucking book. Okay, yeah, sorry. I also got... I took advantage of the fact that he had just recently broken up with his model girlfriend. Oh, nice. And he was all vulnerable and just like (laughs) shook. And I was like... Oh, yes, that's not right. <laughs> Teach me some English. <laughs> anyway, whatever. And oh, my gosh. Yeah. So he gave me some books, actually. He gave me, like, a pile of He gave them. you? He gave me some books. My God. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, one of them was Heart of Darkness. And I haven't read the rest because <laughs> don't follow through as you <laughs> come to know. So you haven't read Heart of Darkness? No. I You've just read... kept it. I'm you might have read, like, the first chapter and then given up. Probably the first page. Like, <laughs> well, we'll see if any of this strikes a chord in you. <laughs> when, when were smartphones making it big? Like, oh, 2011. yeah. And as soon as, like, you could go on Facebook on your phone, I was like, books? <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so we begin in a pleasure ship. A what? It's called a pleasure ship. I'm guessing that kind of means... Well, you'd think, but I think it means like a recreational vessel. I think it's... I'm thinking like a narrowboat barge style thing. Like um, like a riverboat. You know, like on Peaky Blinders, they use it... Like people live in them sometimes, but also they used to use them to like transport goods and stuff. Goods. Goods. Pleasure ship. So I was going to imagine it... Like a cruise, there's like some shrimp cocktail. Okay, but there, like, you can only fit like 10 people on this boat tops, I think. Well, that'd be illegal now anyway. With the- <laughs> True. Anyway, so we're on the Thames, where a group of men are relaxing together as the sun goes down over London. We have a captain, who's also the director of companies, a lawyer, an accountant, an old salt named Marlow. Remember the old sea dog? And they walk into a bar. <laughs> and the unnamed narrator. Um, These five are all old friends held together by the bond of the sea. Can the unnamed narrator <laughs> be Ron Howard? Yes. Because okay. he comes into it literally like twice. He's goes, barely in the story at all. And then he just goes, and things were not fun. <laughs> <laughs> They're restless and darkness slowly begins to fall. According to the narrator, the scene becomes less brilliant but more profound as the darkness falls. And the narrator thinks about all the great vessels that have set sail from the Thames. The night errants of the sea. And he name drops a few like Sir Francis Drake and Sir John Franklin and etc. You're the narrator just thinking about ships that gets <laughs> dark. That's all you fucking do. Gaze out my window. And you're just like, remember all those ships? And everyone's like, not really. If no. I could see the sea from my window, that's all I would do. Just gaze out. This is why you're never living by the sea. No, because I would I would die. I would starve to death. Yeah, because you're like, Sandy, eat something. You're like, ships don't need food. Food. <laughs> <laughs> I am a ship. <laughs> I am a ship. The ship is me. <laughs> and they're like, Sandy, I'm like, call me ship. Because <laughs> <laughs> ship <bro. laughs> It had borne all of the ships whose names are like jewels flashing in the night of time. That's one of the lines. It's like, oh, what a great river. Good job, Thames. The man named Marlow observes. Which so the old he? sea dog. He's the uh, sea dog. Sea dog. Um, he observes that the Thames itself, now an icon of one of the greatest cities on earth, was once one of the dark places on the earth. And he um, thinks about how 
he talks about how when the Romans first conquered the land and bringing, you know, the light of civilization with them, it's how um, the Thames and, and the land around London must have seemed like a hostile, barbaric wilderness. So the anonymous narrator is thinking of the Thames as like this point of a grand, bright journey outwards. Um, whereas Marlowe immediately contradicts him positioning the Thames as the beginning of a dark journey inwards. Does anything um, happen in this book? No. <laughs> yes, of course. Um, the anonymous narrator doesn't feature much in the story, which is told mostly in a flashback from Marlowe's point of view. Um, so I think his purpose is sort of to serve as this foil to Marlowe to contrast him. As you will see. So anyway, this idea apparently puts Marlowe in a storytelling mood. And he's like, did I ever tell you about the time I went to the Congo? And so he starts... Like, no. <laughs> Speaking of the Thames, remember Congo? <laughs> um, so he starts with how it was his one voyage as a freshwater sailor. So oh, usually he wasn't a sea dog yet, he was a sea puppy. He was a, <laughs> a river, a river puppy. <laughs> uh, to be a droplet pup. <laughs> After returning from a six-year trip in Asia. Sixty? Six-year oh. trip in Asia. Oh, like, wait, how is he a puppy? He's, like, literally a hundred. <laughs> I would say he's probably, like... A hundred. A hundred. Or, like, forty. But, anyway. It's like, fuck a boy. Yeah, well, let's just cast Killian Murphy. Why don't we just go oh, really? cast Killian Murphy? Is he that... Is, mm, is he, though? Like, yeah. a character like that? Is he Killian Murphy? Or are you just fucking with me? I think... Because right now Marlowe telling the story is very um, awful. <laughs> awful. No, no, no. He's um, he's thoughtful. He's thoughtful. He's got those like mm, he's cloudy, tr- troubled. He's eyes. troubled. Yeah. <laughs> if he's troubled, he's killing. <laughs> right, Someone check on that guy. See if he's okay. After, so he's just returned from a six-year trip in Asia, and he, like many teenage white people, is seized with the desire to go to Africa. Yeah, of course. He's actually like late twenties, early thirties. But in his, he talks about in how, um, in his childhood, he was fascinated with the quote blank spots on the map, which existed back then. Um, so places like parts of Australia, South America, and of course the heart of Africa. So as an adult, pretty much all of those places, those maps, gaps, gaps, as we call them, heart of darkness, you may say, (laughs) (laughs) Um, have been filled in. So it's now the 1870s, 1880s. Anyway, so he takes it into his head that he's going to go there at last. And he gets a connected aunt of his, something that everyone should have. Oh, a connected aunt? Yes. I want to be the connected aunt. You want to be the connected aunt? I did take a BuzzFeed quiz um, to see whether or not I was the vodka aunt. Oh. Apparently, I'm the weed cousin. Yeah. <laughs> I could have told you that. <laughs> so yeah. she helps him secure a position with a Belgian company. Now, he doesn't name the East India Trading Company. But I think we all know. Did he, he call it Blis Blindia? <laughs> Almost. He just calls it the company, which is probably what everyone called the East India Trading Company at the time anyway. I like that I'm rolling around the, uh, rolling, <laughs> rolling with these jokes. And I'm like, I literally don't know what this is. Like, oh, yeah, you know, East India Trading This is how you got in with your English teacher. He's like, she's so witty. She knows about the East India Trading Company. Did you know that one time he told me he um, made a book? Like, like, made the paper and bound it and stuff. And cool. I was like, wow. <laughs> Make me into a book. <laughs> and I was like, what? Leaf I'm, through my pages. <laughs> I was like, what? I mean, I, I mean, like, you know, for the thing. <laughs> um, the assignment. <laughs> I actually got a very high score in English. That's because he was in love with you. 
I was in love with him. He was he was like, I like the attention. <laughs> you know? He's like, I feel better about my model girlfriend dumping me. Fifteen year olds like me. I was sixteen. Oh, well, then it's legal. It is not. <laughs> okay. Okay, so what is the East India Trading The East India Trading Company, and I wish I wrote this down, but um I think it's like it was a big company. company that was like, it almost transcended like. nations. It was like... What are they trading? Everything. So they, they kind of had footholds all throughout the Asia, um, South America, Africa. They were the ones kind of moving product around the world at that point in time. They're the movers and shakers. Truly. Truly. Um, and I think, you know, and they were pretty dodgy. They were pretty um, violent. Um, oh, I'm not sure if they were officially belonging to any particular country. Why do you say East India? Because um, that's, <clears throat> I think that's where they started initially trading. And then they spread to like the West Indies, which is like the Caribbean and like all these other places. We don't have to include any of those. I was genuinely... No, we should. I think it's important to give it context. Um, Unless I'm wrong, in which case don't include it. Everyone but... knows what the East India... <clears throat> yeah, I'm sure. As you all know, the East India Trading Company. Anyway, Killian um, It might even be a Belgian company, but I'm not sure. Oh, cut that verb out. Probably not. I think it's Dutch or something. English? British. British, okay. Of course it is. Well, I know, it could have been anything. anything but anyway. Dodgy. It... <laughs> and there are parts of the Caribbean. Yeah, and like the second or third one. You know that little short guy? I thought you meant Bill Nye with the fucking tentacles. <laughs> He's like, give me your tea. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, and they basically plundered most of the, the world. Oh, Killian, no go with them. Anyway, Killian Murphy. Hot, <clears throat> He's like, I want to go to Africa. He wants to go to Africa. Discovered a heart of darkness. His aunt's like, here, check this job out. So one of the company's steamer captains um, has recently been killed in a conflict with one of the native Congolese tribes. Oh, sorry, did not good. So when he gets word that he's got the job, so that he's like filling that dead dude's position. He can be a captain. Yeah, because he was like a sea captain. He was like doing merchant stuff. He was just back from a six-year trip in Asia. He did all sorts of stuff there. He's qualified. Backpacking. I don't know what he was doing. He could have been shacking up with me. I'm Asian. (laughs) Yeah. So when he gets word that he's got the job. So he travels to the continent of Europe to a city that he only ever calls the Whited Sepulchre, but which we take to mean Brussels. Um, And he calls it the Whited Sepulchre as a reference to something that's like made to look clean and pretty on the outside but containing corruption within does joseph conrad hate germany or something it, brussels is in belgium belgium is the one that controls I knew it, I knew that. <laughs> so it's like a bible reference i think they talk about whited sepulchers so yeah clean and pretty on the outside containing corruption within i wrote like sam's room <laughs> what's the corruption within your room no, yeah, what's the corruption within my room? It's so clean right now. You Is it really? Oh, cool. Well, I did the sheets. You got clean room energy. So he goes to Brussels to get his contract to work as a steamer captain for this company. And he tells us a little about Freslevin, the man who he was sent to replace. Freslevin, it was relayed to Marlow, was a kind and gentle man by all accounts. However, it is only from the little that he can glean from his employers that Marlow learns this. 
Freslevin was killed by a native in an argument over some chickens. Some chickens? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Apparently, he struck the chief of the village where he was stationed and was consequently stabbed by the chief's son in revenge. He was That's left there right. to die. <laughs> where are the chickens? just wait just wait and the natives apparently out of superstition abandoned the village and melted away into the forest Marlowe says he never learns what became of the chickens (laughs) whether they lived whether the whites had them whether the native Congolese or whatever but I love how you like Marlowe immediately thought what happened to the chickens but the story was that he struck him and then he killed them he struck him because of the chickens something to do with the chicken maybe the yeah, that's all I know. Okay. It was an argument over some chickens. Well, I hope the chickens are okay. Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> it, it was like a hundred years ago. Yeah. Anyway, Marlo arrives at the office for his contract and there were two women there which sort of strike a chord in him. He horny? Um, maybe, but it, it, they're more scary. I think they're kind of stern looking. Knitting and black wool. Um, he says the sight of them comes back to him later on in his journey as he withdraws further from civilization. Like maybe they represent civilization to him in some way. And this Certain is... women knitting with black wool. <laughs> he's like, man, really reminds me of civilization. <laughs> um, uh, this is the quote about them. So he's like, often far away there, I thought of these two guarding the door of darkness, knitting black wool as for a warm pall, one introducing, introducing continuously to the unknown, the other scrutinizing the cheery and foolish faces. Faces. Faces? <laughs> I was like, you mean faces? <laughs> <laughs> The other scrutinizing the cheery and foolish faces with an unconcerned old eyes. Ave, old knitter of black wool. Morituri te salutant. Not many of those she looked at ever saw her again. Not half by a long way. Yeah, see, here's my problem. Um, <laughs> this is why I'm glad I have you to explain things to me. Because if I read that, I'd just be like... <laughs> I was a little bit like that sometimes. I was just like, Although Kenneth Branagh was the one reading it to me, which was kind of nice. I was like, hey, Kenneth. I was literally just like, oh, they're just knitting, Killian. Oh my God, get your stupid contract. <laughs> yeah. This is like the old grizzled Killian on the boat saying these things, though. This is like, you know, <laughs> Cloud Alice when Tom Hanks is there at like the end. Is it Tom Hanks? Yeah, yeah, there at the end, and he's like, telling the story. <laughs> in the room with them is a map with a lot of colored pins in it, demarcating the many different colonial powers at work in Africa at the time. So this time period is often referred to as the scramble for Africa. Oh. Um, so it was like a race between all of the colonizing sort of European countries to get as much territory as possible and therefore the most resources. So, But I think young Marlowe sees the pins as like a positive thing. Like, yes, here is progress sort of demarcated out in color sort of thing. Yeah, because he's white. Yeah, because he's white. Yeah, yeah because he's white. <laughs> um, and the, he's like, oh, that center, the yellow one in the center, that's where I'm going. And that's the land controlled by Belgium, the Congo. And he talks about the river sort of leading into it looking like a snake. Oh my god, river and snakes? Us? We're, <laughs> We're there on the map like, hey. <laughs> hey, Kelly, I'm check that out. <laughs> you want to go out for snake box? <laughs> and so this yellow patch in the center, um, demarcating the land operated by Belgium, is the site of some of the most egregious war crimes, if you can even call them that. And I was like, genocidal atrocities? <laughs> um, on the entire continent. So he's like, mm, I'm going there. And he's like excited about it. And yeah, the, the no. lady was just like <laughs> the Jonah Hill Oscar thing, the, 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 <laughs> like the neck cutting motion. I don't know what you call that. 
Sue, a secretary, takes him in to meet the head of the company. And after he signs the contract, he goes in for a checkup with the company doctor. And the doctor takes phrenological measurements of his skull. Do you know what phrenology is? Study of the skull. Yeah, basically, but like for personality, aptitude. Like it's yeah. a pseudoscience. It was big in eugenics. Let me explain myself. I know about it because of Django Unchained. Yeah. And Leonardo DiCaprio makes some wild accusations. <laughs> black people. He's like, you see that dimple? He's stupid. And I'm like... <laughs> You're just like at the back, like, are you sure, Leo? <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, uh, so this was huge back then. Yeah. This yeah. was like peak phrenology time. Yeah, with the racist, etc. Etc. He makes some pointed questions about. Con- I said I was about to say Conrad, but um, Marlowe's mental powers. Conrad basically did this exact journey, and it's almost like a memoir. <laughs> But he's like, there's this character called Marlo, and he did these things. He's like, his name is Moseph Monroe. Moseph. It's like Blisblinian. <laughs> the Blisblinian blading joke from like five minutes ago. Yeah, <laughs> call back. Uh, so Marlo asks him if he's an alienist, like the show The Alienist. Oh, that didn't really take off, did it? Not really, but like, but that's basically what they used to call psychologists before psychology was a thing. Um, and the doctor said the doctor like chuckles and he's like, well, you know, all doctors should be alienists, like a little. Um, but he does say he wishes he could see and assess the men after they've come back from Africa because he doesn't get to do that because um, they don't come back. Or better yet, <laughs> it's like to him, like they might go home, but like, oh, I was just like, Wait, what? they don't like do exit surveys like we do. <laughs> <laughs> You'll never get off the island. What? <laughs> yeah, he wishes he could assess them after they come back from Africa. Or better yet, note the changes to men's minds in the environment itself, implying that these changes are significant. <laughs> Killian's like, oh. Yeah, usually experiences have an effect on people. And sometimes when they're um, traumatizing, you get PTSD. Yeah. Crazy. (laughs) He's just like, you know, the crazy shit that happens there? That probably fucks him up, right? (laughs) Like, maybe? Gillian's like, uh, uh, what, crazy shit? (laughs) It's like, all right, you're good to go. Bye. (laughs) Wait, tell me more about the... No, no, you're fine. (laughs) See ya. (laughs) Good luck. So when, oh, um, however, as these men do not return to be assessed, the doctor is the first of several European men Marlowe encounters along his journey with futile or useless jobs. This is a theme. Oh, people with futile and useless jobs. Like Are you relating? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, excuse me. There is a stage three lockdown and I am still going to work. So, so you're essential. I'm essential. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's a meme that I saw of like, was it like Ralph Wiggum on the bus? That meme where he's like, I'm in danger. Yeah. And it's like, I'm essential. <laughs> so when Marlo says goodbye to his aunt, she wishes him luck in bringing civilization, also known as religion, to the savages. And I say that in quotation marks. In Africa. So this is what she says. Weaning those ignorant millions from their horrid ways. Oops. Thank you for reading it in that voice. <laughs> <laughs> That's the tone of phrase she uses. That's really good. <laughs> yeah. Marlo notes his aunt's naivete. She is out of touch, according to him, and he extrapolates and projects this onto all women. He's sexist. Great. <laughs> and that's one of the nice things about him. What? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> women are apparently in need of protection from reality. They represent the home, the seed of all fantasy, of morals, of justice, of civilization in every aspect. 
Marlowe is aware that the company operates for profit, not out of a humanitarian mission. As he sets off, Marley gets the feeling like he is not going to be journeying to the heart of a continent, but actually to the centre of the earth. Oh, I thought you were going to say to the heart of darkness. <laughs> Who says the <laughs> no, um, He says the title quite a lot, actually, but not, not in that particular part. So, um, Marlowe is aboard a French steamer along the coast of Africa. It's mostly just impenetrable jungle, like... Along the coast. Oh, yeah, the kind of jungle you have to have, like, a machete through and you yeah. chop your way through it. <laughs> He's like, whoa, is that Sean Connery? <laughs> I was going to say, oh, is that Clayton from Tarzan? Mm, yeah. Every now and then. <laughs> <laughs> the steamer stops to land soldiers and, like, customs officers and, like, people like that. So it's like a little bus. Yeah, it is like, like a little bus. Boat. A ferry. Marlowe is getting restless. Um, Are we there yet? Yeah. Well, and it's like he's got nothing to do. He's like one of those dudes who just needs to be doing something to feel, like, worthwhile. Yeah. Welcome to self-isolation, Marlo. Yeah. Well, (laughs) social distancing. Um, And everything seems so strange. Like, this, like, 2D kind of postcard going by of this um, coastline. Um, He gets the feeling of living in a waking nightmare. At one point along the journey, they come across a French man of war, which is like a warship, um, shelling, which is like firing cannons or bombs. I'm not really sure what they had at this point in time, but they're they're shelling the coastline. Um, That to Marlowe seems completely empty of human life. It seems like pointless that they're shelling. Well, apparently there's some natives in there that are trying to kill. They just call them enemies. Um... They're like, we must fire upon the enemy. Oh, no, the French. Oh, we must fire a bundy. <laughs> how you say a fire? Uh, the influence. Um, the uh, enemy. The enemy. Would you like a baguette while, we, while you watch the... Uh... While you watch this racist act happen, would you like um, croissant? Oh, oui. <laughs> I would love a croissant. As they arrive at the mouth of the Congo River... Marlowe changes ships for a little steamer bound upriver about 30 miles um, to a station called the Outer Station. So the captain of the ship is Swedish and he recognizes Marlowe as a fellow seaman and they get matey. And the Swede opens up to Marlowe about his misgivings, re the colonial officials at the stations along the way, telling him about another Swedish man he knew who'd hanged himself on his way to the interior. This means nothing to me. <laughs> it's just like something bad's going on up there, man. But it's Swedish, so something. <laughs> uh, my friend Hans, <laughs> he hanged himself. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> He's like, welcome on board my steamer. Below we have the steam room. <laughs> Above, we have a friend hanging, so. <laughs> uh, welcome, we are going into the heart of dark. I don't know what accent I'm doing now. I wonder if any of this is racially insensitive. <laughs> I feel like if it's white people, it's okay. You say that as a white, so I, I'm, I'm... Oh yeah, they'll come for you, Sam. <laughs> the they always thing. come for me, Sandy. I'm brown. <laughs> At any given point, I'm always just wrestling <laughs> off like five white people. <laughs> They eventually get to the company station and Marlowe's stomach sinks. The whole station seems to be falling apart. There's heaps of decaying machinery just left in heaps. Sort of by the side of the road, there's a cliff which is being blown up apparently for no reason. He can, He's like, why is that being blown up? So I'm like, I just want to see what happens. He's like, we got all this dynamite, Jim. What do you want to do with it? 
chicken. They're like the chickens that's or chicken run. That's a cartoon we're gonna use. Oh, chicken's, chicken's blown. With some dynamite. Okay, take note. <laughs> okay, so. And he compares the better-known devils of violence and greed to the flabby, pretending, weak-eyed devil of a rapacious and pitiless folly. So he's just like, it's almost like being stupid is more evil than being evil. <laughs> That's Marlowe's attitude oh, towards this. I'm not happy that I don't hate it. <laughs> you kind of agree a little bit? I feel, yeah, I, I was like, as I was writing this, I'm like, maybe Sam will relate. <laughs> like... Considering her new job. <laughs> so he sees a group of black prisoners shuffling along all chained together, guarded by a black soldier wearing a shitty uniform and carrying a rifle. Hmm. He walks along, checking it all out until he comes to a grove of trees where he sees what he realizes are the bodies of Africans lying about on the ground, dying of disease. Probably the sleeping sickness, which was, uh, what was the sleeping sickness blowing up at the time. It's actually a parasitic... Um, single-celled organism. Why was it called the sleeping ship? Because eventually it um, can travel up your nerves, nervous system. You sleep, I'm like, yeah, death. <laughs> um, it travels up your nervous system into your brain, and then when it's in your brain, it apart from like lots of other stuff that it does, it um, disrupts your circadian rhythm. So like you're awake at night and you're sleeping during the day, and you like have no control over. Sounds like depression, my dude. Yeah, but then you die. <laughs> Sounds like depression, my dude. <laughs> so this is like, yeah, an epidemic in the Congo at this point in time. So are the whites, but no one's... <laughs> yeah, true. Um, so Marlowe doesn't know what to do, so he hands a biscuit to one of them. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Killian. <laughs> um, I think the man takes it, but without like really processing what's happening, he just like holds it. <laughs> He's like... Sleep. Thank you. <laughs> um, Marlo sees a bit of white yarn. Marlo's um, just like, good deed, done. <laughs> um, evidently from Europe. So he sees the yarn. He's like, oh, that's like European yarn, I guess. Um, and it's tied around the man's neck. And he like wonders what its purpose is. If it's like a charm or does he just think it's cool? Do we find out? No, he's just, but it's like this, this characteristic of Marlo's where he like, just contemplates stuff and people like yeah, like, like as an outsider he just looks yeah like the fucking black wool with the knitting yeah mm. yeah shut up marlo just do shut up <laughs> <laughs> just me flipping my hair shut, shut up, up. anyway he finally <laughs> just get to the heart he finally finds the building where the europeans hang out which is very tidy and white and pretty and there's a very fancy man dressed in exquisite linen and lovely nice things and it's almost a relief to see, like, this piece of civilization. Later, we learn that he is taught, and that's in quotation marks, a native woman to care for the linens, despite her apparent distaste for the work. So, you know, he's, uh, he's beaten her. Wait, what? He taught what? He's like, I taught a native woman how to care for my linens. He said, oh, the fancy man. The fancy man. I thought you meant Marlo. No, not Marlo. I'm sorry. Yeah. So this man turns out to be the chief accountant for the company, processing the paperwork for all the goods that go up and down the river. It the doesn't way he described this man. I thought he was like a fancy doorman or something. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's, he's they don't have any doorman. There's like there's like eleven white dudes I on the whole. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem like he or anyone else, for that matter, is doing a good job. 
As some products seem to lie about in abundance, not being sent, but they're needed, while others are impossible to get a hold of. Um, Marlo waits for 10 days for a caravan to take it, not like a, not like a RV, but like a, <laughs> like a, like a caravan in the sense that it's like a group of people traveling oh together. It's RV starring Robin Williams <laughs> and like pop sensation Jojo. <laughs> and Killian Murphy's in there going, are we there yet? <laughs> Hard of darkness. So he waits for 10 days for a caravan to take him to the next station further inland. It seems like there's a lot of waiting and fretting in this place. One day, while he's hanging around waiting, the chief accountant mentions a Mr. Kurtz, a man who Marlowe is sure to meet in the interior. Mr. Kurtz is apparently the cream of the crop, an agent for the company who delivers the greatest amount of ivory than all the others put together. The accountant declares that Kurtz, this dude, is sure to be promoted within the company, that he has heard whisperings of some sort that it's already decided by the higher-ups. The accountant asks Marlowe to inform Kurtz that everything at the outer station is in ship shape when he meets him. Um, he apparently fears sending a written message in case it might get intercepted by the people at the central station, whom he apparently distrusts. And I think he's trying to get into Kurtz's good books because he's like, if he's going to be in charge soon. I'm guessing Kurtz is um, Clayton and Tarzan, then. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen Apocalypse Now? Is he Marlon Brando? Yeah. Oh. So I guess he's the Dean from Community. Do <laughs> 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 you remember that episode? Vaguely. Is he, that... He, he, like, burns his diploma. <laughs> he uses the ash and he just goes... <laughs> and then he's, like, naked. We have... Okay. We have to watch it again. Episode, just yeah. This, we just have to watch that episode. Yeah. <laughs> so Apocalypse Now is actually like a direct um, adaptation of Heart of Darkness. Just set in Vietnam instead of the Congo. told me that. I could have just watched that and then just done this. Milo travels to the central station on foot in a caravan of about 60 men. Of the 60, there's just one white man accompanying him who doesn't seem to be able to hack it. The heat and exertion. He keeps fainting. He has to be carried. And of course, this duty falls to the native Congolese men who are traveling with now, he never explicitly says it, but I read one of the reports from the Congo, from the t- like a real report from the Congo at the time. So I was like, what is going on? So I read this report um, and these men were all most certainly slaves pressed into service on pain of death. Most of them were forced to bring a certain amount of goods, like, and it was rubber or ivory. Um, and they would have to like go out, collect it. Because they knew the way, I guess. Um, and they had to bring a certain amount to their colonist captors. And it was often so much that they didn't have any time left in the day to like tend their own gardens or crops or livestock. So most of them starved to death. Um, or a lot of them. A lot of them starved to death. Um, others were shot for slacking or not bringing enough product. And this is the general rhythm of life for a lot of the na- native Congolese at the time. So you would often get like entire tribes moving into areas controlled by different colonizing powers than from where they'd come from because um, it was just to avoid the bloodshed they were experiencing in their own homeland or their own area. So they were often moving into situations that were not much better as well. So it's pretty bleak. So when Marlowe's demanding these men carry this annoying, fainting old dude, they just start deserting. They're just like, nah. And they just leave. They're not meant to desert, though, right? No, like, I'm sure if they got caught, they would get shot. But also, I don't think the white men can distinguish one from the other. Like, they'll just leave. Wait. Uh, wait. What's up? 
That's what I thought was happening. I thought the white guy's collapsing, right? This mm-hmm. one other white guy. And the other guys are just like noping out. But I thought they have to help him because they're, you know. Slaves. Well, basically, there aren't any guards around to stop them from leaving. And for a lot of, I think, native people at the time, it was like, how much do I want to live in my home? Versus how terrible is it? To recap, we started recording this two months ago, right after I finished work. Oh my God. Yeah, right after I finished work. And then we were literally, where were we? The lung of darkness? Yeah. Yeah, we were in the lung of darkness. (laughs) The artery of darkness. The artery of darkness. And I literally just yeeted out <laughs> mentally. <laughs> like I could As soon as I got into like the economics of slavery in the Congo. I felt my brain do like like, um, like that car wheels. It was just oh. like or like um cartoons that run through walls and they like, <laughs> But it was my brain. So it's like the shape of your brain. And I was just like, hey, walk. can't do this anymore. And then I was like, let's pick it up next week. And then that didn't happen because it was illegal. <laughs> yeah, suddenly we were all in lockdown and we couldn't see each other. For like two months. And that was hard. That was hard. But now we're back. Now we're back. And we, we're, we're gonna get to the heart of darkness. We sure are. We're, we're gonna do it. this time. Okay, so, I'm ready. So he remembers that the psychologist, um, doctor guy. The phrenology man? Yeah. The one that was like Leo in Django and Jane. Oh, sorry. Um, observes that his mental state, um, he, he observes that his mental state might be becoming scientifically interesting. So basically, he's losing his shit. <laughs> um, anyway, so he makes it to the central station. Oh, just by foot. Good for him. Yeah. Um, so what about the fainting man? He just left him? I think he gets him there in the end. <sighs> I think he's there too big. He, he drops off the map. We don't know what happens to him. Ah, he that. died then. Yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> so... When he makes it to the central station, Marlowe learns that the steamer he's supposed to command has sunk. Apparently, the volunteer skipper who took charge in his absence ran into some rocks, ripping <laughs> open the bottom of the boat. Apparently, accidentally, but Marlowe's beginning to suspect that the damage may have been done on purpose to prevent or delay him making contact with Kurtz. And I don't know, like, having read it, I don't know if that's true. No one like, wants to go be, to the heart of darkness. Well, it could be his own paranoia. He's like, why don't they want me to be Kurtz? And, or that kind of thing. Um, and, but it also could be the case. Like, I don't, I don't we'll know. refer with the phrenologist. Yes. We'll, con- we'll confer with them. Yes. <laughs> so, Marlowe meets the general manager of the central station, who strikes him as uniquely uninspiring. And what a read. Yeah, he, this is the best part. He <gasps> seems to have attained the position simply through his resistance to disease. <laughs> so it's like everyone else is getting disease and dying, and he's like, not, so he gets promoted. So he tells Marlowe that the steamer was taken out to relieve the inner stations. Um, I assume meaning he was going to bring them su- supplies, especially the station in Kurtz's command. And the manager again praises Kurtz and remarks that Kurtz has talked about on the coast and like he's this sort of big deal. Um, at the station, everyone seems uneasy, living in limbo kind of thing, and their lives revolve around Ivory. So here's the quote. This is like important, significant quote. Big shot, hot shot. The word ivory rang in the air, was whispered, was sighed. You would think they were praying to it. A taint of imbecile rapacity blew through it all, like a whiff from some corpse. By Jove! 
<laughs> I've never seen anything so unreal in my life. And outside the silent wilderness surrounding this cleared speck on the earth struck me as something great and invincible, like evil or truth, waiting patiently for the passing away of this fantastic invasion. So, so Mala often, sorry. You really need that ivory, huh? Yeah. They want it. Wants it. Mm. Maybe not need. It's like um, yeah. uncut gems, but it's heart of darkness. Have well, you seen Uncut Gems? I actually haven't, but... If you want to be stressed for two hours yeah, straight... Yeah, that's what yeah. I heard, and I was like, I don't... It literally hurt my chest. Like, when we started watching it, I was high as fuck, and I was like, we've oh, got to no. stop this, and we've got to... <laughs> we can't deal with this right now. Put on more water instead. So Marlo often refers to the company's boots on the ground as pilgrims, giving them a sort of religious connotation, possibly related to, like, the worship of ivory... Mm. Um, but definitely also in regards to the staffs they carry around to traverse the jungles. Everybody's got like a little walking stick, but also to beat um, Congolese slaves. With, oh, great. You know, Multi-purpose. Exactly. You Swiss know. army. Swiss army knife. Sticks. Like, can get rid of, uh, what's that? Shrubbery? No, not Shrubbery? under. Shrubbery? Yeah. No. Under, underbrush. Underbrush. Under, un, un, Jungle stuff. Vines. Vines. <laughs> Turns and, out the word we were looking for this whole time. And that's it's funny because I've been playing a lot of crosswords. You'd think I'd be better by now. Mm. No. Marlo gets the sense that the central station is only a tiny cleared speck in this vast ocean of jungle, which is constantly on the brink of being swallowed up. Oh. Um, which I love as an image. Just like the jungle consuming yeah and threatening like looming over this like so you could you could say that the jungle is like the fifth character (laughs) (laughs) like new york city (laughs) in sex in the city marlo dredges the ship out of the river and he starts working on it trying Mm. to make it seaworthy someone help killian murphy i've got in brackets river river worthy (laughs) (laughs) question mark It ends up taking three months. Because what? Needs, yeah, because he needs rivets, and there are none. What are rivets? So rivets are like nails, Why but can you just for metal. Big. So metal nails? And you like weld them on, I think. Okay. I don't really so know. So did it, was the shipping date like three months or something? Took him that long to get rivets? Took him three months to get rivets? Yeah, he's just waiting around trying to fix his boat. Three months he's been there. He's not even circling the heart yet. No, I know. He's like, He's like, this is bullshit. For three months. Yeah. Three. That's so, he, so yeah, long. so he keeps waiting for these rivets to be sent from the outer station. And he remembers at the outer station there were rivets everywhere. Just around? Yeah, just like on the ground. Oh. And the waste and the inefficiency of this whole situation strike him as ludicrous. One day, a grass hut full of goods like cotton and such like um, burns down. What? Because it's made of grass. Marla witnesses a man carrying a bucket full of water to help... Rivets? Oh. <laughs> nope. A bucket full of water to help pull, put out the blaze, except mm-hmm. it has a hole in it. And again, he's just like stunned by how stupid and foolish... The man the with the bucket hole, is that like a Congolese slave or like a whitey? I'm not sure. I think a whitey. <laughs> Can't say whitey. that. <laughs> a white person. So the native workers, here we go, based at the station, dance around the flame delightedly. <laughs> They're like, ha, fuck you. Um, Who is in charge? The whites. Why? But they're not very good at it. They're not doing a good job. No. <laughs> Welcome to history. 
Marlo's just like, can someone, can someone please get me a rivet? <laughs> you know the meme of like, can I please get a waffle? <laughs> the, that's yeah, Marlo. And yeah. He's like, can I please get a rivet? <laughs> At this point, just make one. Just grab yeah. some like well, old no bones. Out here. Can he use bones? No. There's probably tons of dead people, and he just use their skeletons. Um, sir. When they finally put the fire out, one of the native men is accused of lighting the fire and is badly beaten. When he recovers, he disappears into the jungle. He just nopes out of there. <laughs> he's like, fuck this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so after this episode, Marlo gets talking with the station's brickmaker. <laughs> oh. She's the brickmaker. It's yeah. her turn. Um, and accompanies him back to his own quarters, which are a tad more fancy than um, anyone else's that Marlon has run into so far. This brickmaker also seems to do no work at all. Oh. Um, Cause apparently the materials he needs to make bricks haven't arrived. Rivets. <laughs> Rivets. And, and they don't seem likely to anytime soon. I guess he needs like straw and clay or whatever. But anyway, Marlon realizes after talking for a while that the brickmaker is trying to get information from him about the company's intentions for the station. Oh. Which of course Marlon knows like zero things about. And he's like, if this guy doesn't know, yeah, so in this, in the Brickmaker's quarters, he notices a painting of a blindfolded woman holding a torch. Oh. Um, which is probably like a metaphor. Um, it's like learns... she's got light, but she's blind. <laughs> she he learn... learns that Kurtz painted it. Oh! And perhaps it's a symbol of the process of civilization bringing light to the dark places. But what does the blindfold then mean? Kurtz is just like, I just thought it was cool. <laughs> She's got like one boob out and he's like, thanks. <laughs> he's just like, <laughs> no, he was actually drawing her eyes that he fucked up and he was like, I'll put a blindfold on her. It'll be deep. The men will go crazy. They'll be like, Kurt's years, metaphorical son of a he's gun. Like, this is my late girlfriend. <laughs> no, don't. <laughs> she didn't have a blindfold on. Her eyes followed me around the room. And by around the room, I mean like up and down as I bounced up and down. And I was just like, don't look at me. <laughs> Okay, so Marlo starts wondering about Kurtz. Who is this guy? And what are the ideals he's supposed to be purporting? Um, Kurtz was apparently commissioned to write a report on the civilization of the savage population in the interior. Is he basically Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now? Yeah, 100%. Okay. Marlon Brando is directly based on this guy, Kurtz. But anyway. Heart of Darkness, that's the Yeah, thing. that's the thing. Doko. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Well, now, finally, something I can relate to. <laughs> something on a screen. <laughs> so, everyone talks about how astute and eloquent and good at getting loads of ivory this guy Kurtz is. One time, he wore a pith helmet and khaki, so I started wearing a pith helmet and khaki. Apparently, he does car commercials in Japan. I forgot I wrote that. Oh, did you write that? I wrote that. Pith? Pith helmet, you know, like this, um, like Jane's dad in Tarzan. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, One Kurt... time he wore a pith helmet and khaki, yeah. so I started wearing a pith helmet and khaki. Yeah, Kurt seems to be the big dog on campus. Yeah. The cool guy, the jock. <laughs> he's like, you know, he's just throwing a football around and he's like, it's your dream dad, not mine. <laughs> the brick maker, like, he's really good at getting ivory, but all he wants to do is sing in the sky. <laughs> <laughs> it's Troy Bolton. Oh. And he's like, no, son, you gotta get the ivory. He's like, the only ivory I wanna do is tickle him. Like, you know, <laughs> piano. <laughs> You're killing me. 
The brickmaker explains that Kurtz is a Renaissance man, saying he's a special em- emissary of Western ideals. Oh, you destined... meant it when you said Renaissance man. I thought it was like a, you know how uh, it's a joke. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, a Renaissance man. This is when it actually no, meant something. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, what do they call it? A polymath? Someone who's good at everything? The brickmaker also spills the beans that he's peeped at a confidential oh. message concerning Marlowe's employment, which he took to indicate that Marlowe is similarly a favorite. So like Kurtz, people are expecting sort of good things from him. So oh. Marlowe uses this apparent power to pressure the brickmaker into ordering rivets for his ship. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I'm kind of important. <laughs> Y'all got any rivets? <laughs> Marlowe finds the foreman, the man he was working on the ship with, and he tells him that they will have rivets in three weeks, and they actually start to dance for joy as they're losing their minds from frustrations of trying to work on this stupid boat. Yeah. Unfortunately, the rivets do not come. Instead, the El Dorado Exploring Expedition arrives. Now, this is a group of white soldiers of fortune intent on, quote, tearing treasure out of the bowels of the land. That's so visceral. Yeah. Um, and the group is actually led by the uncle of the general manager, the guy who doesn't get sick. Oh, <laughs> That's yeah. That's whole thing. Um, <laughs> so there's a little bit of corruption, it seems, there. And Marlowe hears them conspiring one night while he pretends to sleep. <gasps> and they're talking about Mr. Kurtz. Oh my god, he's such a like Bella Swan in Twilight Eclipse when <laughs> Jacob cuddles her for warmth. And they're like, man, Bella's pretty cool, right? And she's like, I'm asleep, but I can kind of hear. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's exactly It's exactly that. So, (laughs) they're talking about Kurtz, and they're like, man, he's pretty cool, right? (laughs) And he's like, oh, man, I hope they say something cool about me. (laughs) And the manager... They're just like, Marlo's so obsessed with his rivet. (laughs) (laughs) The manager is complaining that Kurtz apparently has come to the Congo to bring about reform in the stations, turning them into beacons of civilization or something, and he reveals he fears Kurtz taking his job. He's like... It's like Kurtz's plan doesn't get him involved me and like I'm He's like if Kurtz like never gets sick, I'm fucked. <laughs> like if I even sneeze around here, I'm out. So the uncle tells him not to worry. He tells him about um a year earlier Kurtz came down river with the biggest load of ivory anyone had ever seen. Oh my goodness. And it's implied he could have stayed and been promoted, but instead he turned around and decided to journey three hundred miles back upriver to his post. And the ivory came with a letter from Kurtz demanding that the manager stop sending him incompetent men. Um, but also news that Kurtz had been very ill with one of the many tropical diseases sort of going around. Uh-oh. So the manager also complains about a wandering trader who's been bothering him. And the uncle says to just go ahead and hang the dude as there's no one to contest the decision out here in the middle of nowhere. Great. Um, on the other hand, nature will probably do all the work for him in terms of Kurtz. Oh. Because <laughs> they're like, he's sick. You know? eh. So yeah, they're gonna have they're like this this wandering trader has been bothering me. He's like, go go hang him. <laughs> no one's gonna care. Is it Marlowe? No no no. Oh. You'll meet him later. Oh. Um, a hang. Marlowe is shocked enough by this conspiring to stand up, which frightens the men because they thought he was asleep, and they quickly hurry away, pretending they didn't notice him. Um, soon enough, the El Dorado expedition. This is the, the quote. Went into the patient wilderness that closed upon it as the sea closes over a diver. Oh. So it's like there's no trace of him. Whoosh. <laughs> yes. Whoosh. 
Uh, later on, he hears that all the expedition's donkeys have died. Oh, but he doesn't no. learn the fate of the less valuable animals. Has <laughs> had the humans. Yeah. Good one, Killian. Good <laughs> one, Marlo. He's like, bum bum. <laughs> Um, he's almost done repairing the steamer by now, and he's. Where's the leave. rivets? How did he repair it without the well, rivets? Well, he, he pressured the bricklayer guy. Yeah, they didn't. In getting them for him. But they didn't arrive. Remember, they were like, "They'll get there in three weeks," and then it That's didn't right. arrive. So he must have found. Mm-hmm. He must have figured something out. Maybe he's just like duct tape or something. Yeah. <laughs> so he's almost done repairing the steamer by now, and he's preparing to leave on a two-month trip to bring the manager. Um, and several pilgrims up the river to Kurtz's station. Marlow notes at one point that it feels like a trip back in time. Mm. I guess because it's like prehistoric jungle, it feels like, you know. The journey is tough. There's all sorts of hidden logs and rocks buried in the stream bed that could damage the hull of the steamer. Yeah. So it's, it's what tricky. Um, how did they communicate? Marlo, how about this? Marlo has a crew of Congolese men helping him traverse the water who proved to be actually good at their jobs. Traveling on the river is like being separate from the jungle. It passes in two-dimensional tableaus. I do still have a fucking question. Yes. How did they communicate with each other? I think a lot of them have learned English, or at least enough English to kind of get across what they need. So at night, they sort of anchor down, um, and they hear often hear drums in the forest. (gasps) And every now and then they glimpse a native in the underbrush, which unsettles them. Um, The Europeans, anyway. Oh yeah. Marlo is disturbed by the suspicion of the not being inhuman. What? <laughs> so like the sounds awaken in him a sense of kinship in like but like in the way that you might feel a sense of kinship with a whale or something. Like it's still one mysterious and two inferior to you. If that makes sense. But he's like, mm, it's almost like they're like me. <laughs> But, but you know, le- like he doesn't really think that. He's just, he's just. But less. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. Yeah, he. Oh, this is him. It's almost impressive. Yeah. And anyway. he's like, the terrible thing is, what if they aren't animals? Because <laughs> then that makes me a bad person. It's like, what ding, if ding, ding, they're ding, people? <sighs> yeah, it's real dodgy. Although, dodgy. Yeah. <laughs> Racism is dodgy. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Um, but working helps him ignore his misgivings. He's like, I repair and pilot the ship and that's all. And it has nothing to do with the incompetence and cruelty I see around me. He's like <laughs> denying his own complicity. He's, He's like, like, I'm just in charge of this one ship. I'm merely the boatman. I man the boat. <laughs> <laughs> Racism? Never heard of it. <laughs> when they're about 50 miles away from Kurtz's station, they see a mm. hut on the riverbank with a stack of firewood and a sign that says, wood for you, hurry up, approach cautiously. <laughs> Mysterious. Wood for you. Wood for me? <laughs> and the signature is illegible, but it's certainly not Kurtz's. Why? Because it doesn't look like a K. It could be Ertz. <laughs> <laughs> Marlo starts looting the hut like a video game character, and inside he finds a book on seamanship, um, which actually kind of like fills up his heart. Like he's like, oh, because it's like a fragment of the world where he feels comfortable. It's like. Boats, yeah. Yeah. You're Marlo. No, please. You <laughs> please love boats, no. though. I do. You would wait months for a rivet. So there's writing in the margins in oh. some weird script he can't read, and he wonders if it's code. 
the manager, um, the guy who doesn't get sick, yeah. assesses that the wood must have been left by the Russian trader, the man who Marlowe overheard the manager was planning to hang. Oh, you know? yeah. So it's this wandering trader. Um, so they take the firewood to fuel the ship and they continue on their way with Marlowe speculating about Kurtz the entire time. He loves to speculate. Of course, yeah. His favorite pastime. Nothing else to do on a boat and on, on the jungle. Yeah. What are you going to do? You can't speculate. Speculate. <laughs> That's his Tinder bio. <laughs> Boats, speculation, and... 6'10". <laughs> um, he's 6'10"? <six> <laughs> he's a tall, tall freak. 6'10". <laughs> <Six foot ten. laughs> but he's got like a weirdly short torso. <laughs> it's all legs. He's slender, man. <laughs> Two days later, they arrive at a point eight miles from Kurtz's station and weigh anchor. Ooh, we get Marlo the wants to keep going, but evening is falling and the manager says, no way, because the waters are dangerous. Here. This is how you get sick. That's what he's... How are you There's an oppressive fog and the jungle has grown suddenly creepily silent. Um, suddenly, the fog lifts and then just as suddenly it settles again. It would feel almost supernatural. Oh my god. You never watch Vampire Diaries, but okay. in the first season, anytime Damon would arrive, like they'd really crank up the smoke machine. Oh, were they? So, so that's probably what's happening Is he a there. Greek god? <laughs> yeah, have you seen Ian Somerhalder? No. So, so they hear a sudden cry from the trees. It sounds desolate. Ooh. Then there's a cacophony of raised voices, then silence again. The white men are shaken, loading their guns. However, the Congolese crewmen are calm and alert. One remarks to Marlowe that they want to eat the owners of the voices. <laughs> Marlowe realizes from like a creeping horror that these men are cannibals and also that they must be very hungry as they haven't been able or allowed to go ashore with the They're money they've been cannibals. making to buy their own supplies. I, I mean, according to Marlowe, they are. Okay. I mean, equally possible that they're just fucking with him. But yeah, also, that's true. I, I mean, it's, I'm, I didn't do any research on whether they were Great. cannibalistic practices. The, other, the upshot of this, or the other mm -hmm. side of this, is that they haven't been allowed to go ashore with the money they've been making to buy their own food and supplies. Mm -hmm. And they've been forbidden from eating the white men's supplies. All they had was some rotting hippo meat, which was long oh. ago thrown overboard by the pilgrims because it stank. So they're actually starving. <laughs> the manager tells Marlow to keep going. However, Marlow refuses. To pilot the steamer in such low visibility would be a death sentence. Oh. We've been going at this all wrong. Maybe Marlow isn't Killian Murphy. Maybe he's... Robert Pattinson in The Lighthouse. Yeah, actually. Right? <laughs> yeah. And then the I old version was... of him is yeah. Willem Dafoe. <laughs> oh my god. And it's a black and white. You just bully my life. Let's leave Killian out of this. Maybe he's yeah. Kurt. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh. When he's a little bit older. Like Tommy Shelby. Yeah. Killian. Just a bit crazy. That a would lot crazy. Be amazing. I love us. I love Killian. <laughs> You know, um, e when we were doing our training, we would play these games, and it was mm -hmm. like we had to write like our celebrity crush or whatever. And I wrote Killian Murphy, and this girl that I like, she, the one you don't like. yeah, she looked at the photo. She's like, "Ew, who would find him attractive?" And I was just like, mm -hmm. "It's like in my book of notches." I'm like, <laughs> I'm like three more, and I'm gonna have to kill you. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> it's like you know, I'm um, loyalty cards, and I'm like. <laughs> Yeah, so this time, this time, Marlo's saying no to the manager, I don't want to keep going. Marlo doesn't think the natives will attack them, and he thinks the cry they heard sounded more sad than angry. Oh. Um, eventually, the fog lifts when they're a mile and a half from the station, and the natives fire arrows at them. Oh, God. Marlo rushes inside the cockpit, which isn't called a cockpit because it's a boat. 
but whatever, like I don't uh, remember what it's called. Clip <laughs> it. The the little driver house. So <laughs> from, from through a window, he can see that in a bush on a high bank, there's a group of native bowmen. He also sees a snag, like a log or something sticking out of the water um, in the river, not too far ahead. So the pilgrims fire on the natives with their guns, oh, no. um, but the smoke the guns produce is as bad as the fog, so now we can't see the natives or the snag. Oh, God. So Marlow makes the executive decision to grind as close to the shoreline as possible to just rub up on the coast, uh, on the coast, on the shoreline of the river, um, desperate to avoid the snag. That's like his one job, and the boatmen are someone else's. <laughs> so in the scuffle, his helmsman, yeah. a native Congolese man, um, takes a spear to the side and dies. Yeah, it's usually what you do when you take a spear to yes. any so direction. His blood spills onto Marlowe's socks and into his shoes. Oh no, you wet socks! <laughs> Marlowe pulls the steamer whistle over and over, which frightens the native attackers back into the trees. Oh. And they apparently give off a long cry of fear and despair. Marlowe interprets it as despair. Mm, okay, Marlowe. When one of the other whiteys comes into the pilot house, <laughs> cockpit. Oh, it's called a pilot house. Cool. <laughs> um, and he sees the dead helmsman dying. The dead helmsman dying. Um, Milo makes that man steer as he pulls off his socks and shoes and throws them overboard. Oh, no, no, he's like... He's just freaking out. He's like... <laughs> Ew, that means he's just going to have, like... He, he'll he's just be on his feet. Yeah. It's like Die Hard now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he could have just asked someone for, like, spare yeah, socks or something. Okay, so Milo feels... <laughs> yes, he definitely could have, but... I don't know what to tell you, man. He's freaking out. Um, he feels that somewhere, Kurtz must be dead as well, and he's overcome with a kind of disappointment. I think he's holding on to the idea of Kurtz as the one thing that can make his being there in Africa not futile. And yeah, he wanted to meet the man, the legend. <laughs> the, the myth? Yeah, sure, that too. <laughs> um, Marlon takes a breather here to ponder Kurtz for a while, um, from like his position as narrator, so like in the future having met him. So he remembers the Kurtz mentioned, that Kurtz mentioned my intended. My intended. Um, a fiancé waiting for Kurtz in Europe. He recalls in particular the way Kurtz spoke of her as he spoke of everything. My ivory, my stallion, as his possession. Hmm. This aspect of Kurtz, the dark master, disturbs Marlow the most in hindsight. He also record, recalls reading a report that Kurtz wrote at the request of the International Society for the Suppression of Savage Customs, um, which was an eloquent paper, if lacking in any practical suggestions. However, Marley describes finding a handwritten postscript on the paper that simply read, exterminate all the brutes. This, Marlow suggests... Powerful stuff. <laughs> ...is the exposition of Kurtz's method of the suppression of savage customs. Just kill everyone that's not him. Yeah. So he speculates that it may be the result of Kurtz's adoption into the native way of life that he may have had at the time of writing already been involved with the unspeakable rights of the Congolese people um, who may have even made sacrifices in his name. This is all just speculation. Can he he part, should stop doing that. <laughs> he loves yeah, it. Yeah. So Marlowe is thinking like Africa made him cruel somehow mm. um, <laughs> rather than like having no accountability being, <laughs> making him cruel, you know? Being his own god. Yeah, so Marlo says he feels responsible for the preservation of Kurtz's good name and memory. Well, no one, yeah, nah, like, dude. He doesn't, 
No one asked you to do that, Marla. Just get some shoes on. (laughs) So he obviously... Sorry, and he feels like he has no choice to keep his legacy alive. Like it's out of his control. Like Kurtz is still controlling him. So he obviously feels there's some kind of greatness there that's worth preserving. Sure. However, he mentions he's unsure if Kurtz was worth the lives lost on his behalf. Um, And then he comes back to the dead helmsman on the boat. Who he kind of blames for his own death. (laughs) So... That's Mar- <laughs> that's Marlo. Um, he throws the body overboard to the dismay of both the white pilgrims and the black workers. They can eat him. Yeah. Um, yeah, Marlo says that the whites wanted to bury him and the Congolese workers wanted to eat him. And he's like, neither of you are getting what you want. Yeah. He the ocean can have He's literally him. having a panic attack and he's like, get it out. Yeah, literally everything. Just like, just throw it. Just throw so, it into the river. <laughs> into the only calm that I know. Water. Oh. Just let him have his little ship and some rivets. <laughs> so the pilgrims are pleased as punch that they drove away the enemy. Marlo sarcastically congratulates them on the smoke they produced. <laughs> and they're like, man, what's eating that guy up? What's his problem? And he's like, I have no shoes. <laughs> I have no rivets. <laughs> I have dried blood on my toes. Um, and I have no socks. At last, around the corner, the inner station comes into view. A bit Ooh. run down, but definitely still standing. This is the heart of darkness. This is it. Marlo is tickled by the fence. Only half of it is standing, but the part that is has little carved balls on top of the fence post, which is like such a civilized thing, right? Balls. Little carved balls on top of the fence balls. post. Balls. Like spheres. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen anyone so done with <laughs> spheres. <laughs> Who did that? Why are there balls there? Yeah, like, like you have to post little ornamental shit. balls on them. Oh yeah, so it's like a like a like a metal fence, like a Well no, like a wooden one. A wood fence with balls on top. Just, uh, it's fine, don't worry about it. I can hear yeah. I'll picture it in my mind's eye. I'll speculate. It's really important that you accept this so we can move on. <laughs> Spears. <laughs> A white man waves them in with colorful patches holding his clothes together, pulling, putting Marlo in mind of a jester. He seems unable to stop talking. It's like he hasn't talked to anyone in months. Mm-hmm. Kind of like us. <laughs> um, he's the Russian traitor. Oh, the guy that's going to get yeah. hanged. Yeah. He tells them all they'll be all right now. The natives mean them no harm, really, and only wanted to scare them off. Though Marlo is less than convinced. He's going to speculate, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> The Russian trader tells Marlow a little about himself. He's been a merchant seaman and was outfitted by a Dutch trading house to go into the interior. And it seems like he's just been bare girlsing out here in the wilderness for most of his adult life. He's only 25. Aww. And Marlow is pretty impressed with him. He's just like, yeah, this kid's got some gumption. He's got some moxie. Moxie. Um, Marlow gives him the book on seamanship, which is confirmed to be the Russian's. What Marlow thought was code in the margins was just notes mm-hmm. in Cyrillic script. <laughs> so that's disappointing for him. I think a little miniature of the larger disappointing revelations throughout the story. Oh no. The trader is obsessed with Kurtz, we learn. He cares for him in his illness. He loves speaking with him. He must be like just a really clever dude. Like just really great at speaking. Like Kurtz? Eloquent, yeah. Yeah, that's he's a cult leader. Yeah, yeah. He credits Kurtz with enlarging his mind. Yikes. <clears throat> yes. For Marlowe, Kurtz is a voice, but we hear little of what he has to say. Just fragments, so it's kind of empty. Kind of like the moral core 
of the Europeans. We keep being told it's there, but we never see it. Does that make sense? So he keeps talking about Kurtz's voice, but we only hear Kurtz talk like three times in the whole story. Really? Pretty much. And most of it in like flashbacks as well. So do we ever meet Kurtz? We do, yeah. But he, he hardly speaks at all. What? Because um, he's really sick when we meet him. But just hold on a second. Oh, okay. Because it's about to be revealed. So we have to, anyway, we have to take it on faith, even when it doesn't seem very convincing about how how great this Kurtz is. So anyway, the Russian trader wants Marlow um, to take away Kurtz soon. So I think so he has a better chance of surviving his illness. His time with Kurtz has been fragmented. He goes off for long periods with the tribe he's convinced to follow him, raiding the countryside for ivory. One time, Kurtz threatened to shoot the Russian trader over a small stash of ivory, um, but the trader is still super loyal to him. He's like, it's fine, you know. Don't worry. <laughs> it's like I love in, in an abusive relationship. <laughs> no, like, I was in the wrong. Yeah, like he was totally in the right to shoot me if he wanted. Like, it's fine. While he talks with the Russian, Marlow looks through his binoculars towards the station, where he's chilled to realize that what he thought were ornamental carved balls. Huh? On top of the fence, skulls are actually human heads. Mm, knew in it. the direction of the station house. I knew it. No one put fucking balls on <laughs> fences. I was like, um, he can't really find it in himself to be surprised. He's just like, Africa. <laughs> <laughs> no, this, this is Marlowe. He's just like, sure. <laughs> the Russian explains that these are the heads of rebels, which makes Marlowe laugh out loud. He's like, how can you be a rebel? in this place mm. um like it just doesn't make any sense to him at this point um i think at this point he's like enemies now rebels he's thinking of all the labels europeans give to the natives to justify their actions towards them um so despite not really seeing them as human he's still like a bit sympathetic in this part cool. to their plight the russian says kurtz has been abandoned by the company <gasps> as they have been sent no medicine with which to treat him <laughs> well, i was like tell me about it <laughs> i was trying to get rivets <laughs> for three months you want to talk to me about waiting? <laughs> so at this moment, the pilgrims um, bring Kurtz out of the station house on a stretcher, and he's skinny as a skeleton. Um, and immediately, natives rush out of the trees towards them. Ooh. Kurtz speaks to them, and they allow them all to pass. So we see he has some sort of authority with them. We learn that they didn't want the steamer to take him away, and that's why they attacked. Oh, they love him. Yeah. Great. This is code. Kurtz has been informed about Marlow, and he tells him that he's glad to see him. While the manager speaks to Kurtz in the cabin on the steamer, Marlow is on the deck. He sees a beautiful native woman with lots of jewellery walking along the shore. Oh. Her emotions and intentions are a mystery to us, but she seems intent on the ship before eventually disappearing into the forest. Oh. Who is she? Mm. Marlow thinks the jewellery she is wearing must be worth several elephant tusks. The Russian implies she's Kurtz's mistress and has some influence over him. Oh, um, mm. saucy. He says if she had tried coming aboard, he would have shot her. So the Russian doesn't like her very uh -huh. much. They hear Kurtz yelling at the company manager inside the cabin. Kurtz accuses them of not coming to rescue him, but to come to take his ivory. <laughs> the manager takes Marlow aside, letting him know that despite doing all they could for Kurtz, his, quote, unsound methods have been deemed unacceptable and caused the company to close off this station for the near future. The manager is apparently going to report Kurtz's complete lack of good judgment to the company directors. So, Bolly for him, he's not going to have to worry about Kurtz anymore. 
Marlow sees this as hypocritical and tells the manager he thinks Kurtz is a remarkable man, possibly more out of spite and hating this guy than actually like. I hope you get Kurtz. sick. <laughs> um, but this serves to alienate him from the rest of the group for oh, good. Oh no. But Marlow is like, oh, here I have a choice of nightmares. I'm going to choose the more honest seeming one. Just a straight up murderous megalomaniac. Over like. The devil you know, baby. Over, I guess, the. El Dorado. Narcissistic, like, manipulative, cowardly feeling one, I guess. That's also Kurtz. Yeah, yeah. I guess he doesn't know it at that point. I mean, he could guess. I don't know. Marlo, this is a choice he's Marlo's just losing it. Ever since the rivets, he hasn't been the same. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well now Marlo is classified as one of the unsound himself. Uh-oh. By allying himself with Kurtz. Before they leave, the Russian reveals that it was Kurtz himself who ordered the natives to attack the steamer, hoping it would drive them back and convince them he was dead. Ooh. The Russian trader asks Marlo to protect Kurtz's reputation, and in return, Marlo warns him that the manager talked about hanging him. <laughs> I was just like, whew. <laughs> But he's not super surprised, and he bums some good English tobacco and cartridges, shoes, oh. and, and shoes and stuff off Marlow before getting into a canoe with some native orbsmen. Well, hopefully Marlow also have shoes now. <laughs> yeah. And eating himself out of it. Yeah. He's like... So long. <laughs> <laughs> Is that your Russian act? Das vidanya! Das vidanya. Marlow. Marlow. Before they set off... <laughs> Marlo wakes up on board the steamer in the middle of the night to the sound of drums and chanting, and he realizes that Kurtz is gone. He doesn't raise the alarm, but he goes out to look for Kurtz himself. He finds the trail, uh, realizing Kurtz must be crawling away from them on all fours. He's pretty weak at this point. (laughs) So creepy. Marlo isn't freaked out. He talks about how he feels like a child playing a game, like hide-and-seek or something, and he captures up with Kurtz easily. He manages to stand up when he sees him. They're close to the fires of the native camp. I think they can, like, glimpse them through the underbrush. So they're not too far away from the native camp where Kurtz was trying to escape to. Marlow only now realizes he's in danger. Kurtz could order the natives to kill him, but he doesn't. He orders Marlow to go away and hide. Mm-hmm. Marlow sees the scary figure of someone he figures to be, like, a native sorcerer. <laughs> like a shaman or something. Through the trees. Marlow was like, do you know what you're doing? And Kurtz was like, of course, I'm a genius. Or something <laughs> like that. Marlow could snap Kurtz in half if he wanted, the dude is so frail, but he still feels powerless. And Ooh. he threatens Kurtz with strangulation if he calls out to the natives. It's <laughs> like, fucking strength. Um, <laughs> you know how you do? Kurtz mourns the failure of his grand plans. Oh, what was his grand plan? I don't, I don't know. Ivory. A king. Ivory, Ivory king. king just, yeah. just build a house. Um, Marlow comforts him with the assurance that the Europeans all think him a very great success. <laughs> Marlow tells Kurtz that he will be lost unless he comes back to the ship and Kurtz's resolve eventually fails and he lets Marlow take him back to his cabin. Oh, he's probably just like carrying him like like bodyguard style and um, Kurtz is Whitney Houston. (laughs) (laughs) And Marlow is Kevin Costner with that terrible haircut Uh, that everyone actually got for a while. um, So when the steamer departs at noon the next day, Kurtz's native followers stand on the shore and watch them leave. Three men with red earth painted on their bodies, wearing horned headdresses, chant as they leave. Marlow puts Kurtz in the pilot house, the cockpit, to get some air. And Kurtz is able to watch his native mistress run after him, shouting. The other, other natives chase after them and start to shout. But the pilgrims pull out their rifles, scattering the crowd, until the mistress alone watches them disappear into the smoke. Now, 
the way down the river is faster than the way up the river. Oh, as it usually is. Yes, okay. <laughs> Gravity. I'll explain that to you later. <laughs> um, and almost as fast is Kurtz's decline in health. Oh, yikes. Did yes. you write that down? Were you... Oh my god. I don't know if I stole that or if I wrote that. Maybe I wrote that. Maybe I'm just smart. <laughs> One of us has to be. <laughs> the manager and the other pilgrims kind of leave the two of them alone. Marla reflects that he's now considered part of the party of unsound method. Kurtz talks to, or at, Marlowe, much like he did with a Russian. We don't get to hear that, though. We just... He's just like, and I talk to Kurtz. And we don't really... There's, it's not like dialogue, you know what I mean? It's just like, um, Charlie Brown's parents. <laughs> yeah. Some of what he says impresses Marlowe. Kurtz is eloquent, after all. But some of what he says disappoints Marlowe, such as Ch- Kurtz's childish and grandiose plans for fame and fortune. For example, he wants the king to greet him on his return. Hmm. Um, he's just, yeah, just a bit of a megalomaniac and a bit delusional. So the steamer breaks down. Um, there were no rivets. <laughs> and it's going to take some time to repair. Oh. Marlowe gets sick, <gasps> as you might expect, since he's hanging out with Kurtz all day long. Oh, no. Um, at some point, Kurtz realizes he's going to die before reaching Europe again. That sucks. And he becomes more incoherent as his sickness gets worse. At one point, Marlowe thinks he might be reciting parts of articles he wrote for newspapers. Um, at this point, we've learned that he was at one point a journalist. That's possibly the reason that he was commissioned to write that paper for them. Do we know what the sickness is? Is it just... It might be the sleeping sickness, but it's not specified. Okay. So the sleeping sickness was a huge um, yeah. epidemic at the time, but there was lots of other sort yeah. of fevers you could get. It was, it was the 18... It was a nightmare. Yeah. It was 1870s. Nobody time. washed their asses. Or their hands. <laughs> yeah, or anything. But Nobody washed. Nobody. So one night, Kurtz tells Marlowe that he's waiting for death. As Marlowe approaches, the look on Kurtz's face changes, almost as if he's receiving a vision of some kind. And he cries, The horror. The horror. Marlowe is scared and leaves the room, not wanting to watch him die. <laughs> Um, that's like the most famous line in the book. The horror, the horror. The horror, the horror. And it's like, what's he talking about? Like, what's he referring to? Genocide? Or just that he's dying? Or all the... My leg's just hurting. No, that's all the terrible things he's seen, the terrible things he's done, who knows. He joins the manager at dinner, when suddenly they are swarmed with flies. Yikes, no, gross. And then a servant comes in at last and tells them Kurtz is dead. Oh... Kurtz is buried the next day. Marlowe gets really sick and almost dies himself. The worst part of it for him, he says, is that unlike Kurtz, he would have nothing to say. At the point of his death, certainly nothing so profound. Like the horror, horror, the horror. The horror. <laughs> you could just say the horror, the horror, if you want. <laughs> he could just be like, same. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Um, but Marlowe does recover, and after which he leaves Africa and returns to that whited sepulchre, Brussels. He sort of, when he's there, he sort of resents everyone for going about their business as if he hasn't had this traumatic experience. (laughs) He's like, fuck (laughs) off. You Um, don't even know. You were there, man. His aunt nurses him back to health, and then a bespectacled emissary of the company comes to retrieve the papers that Kurtz put into Marlowe's keeping around the time of his death. Marlowe only gives the pamphlet on the suppression of savage customs with the postscript exterminate all the brutes torn off it. Like, <laughs> maybe not that. Time. They're like, um, what was here? And like, oh, got some coffee. gravy. It's from. <laughs> um, the man threatens to take it to court to get the rest of the papers. 
Another man, claiming to be Kurtz's cousin, comes later to take some of the letters to the family and tells Marlowe that Kurtz had been a great musician destined for the stage. He is called a universal genius. Um, another man, a journalistic colleague of Kurtz's, comes for some of his writing. His impression of Kurtz is that he would be amazing in politics. He, um, he doesn't say right or left, but he does say that he was an extremist and it sort of doesn't matter what side he was on. Which I think is really interesting. He's literally just a cult leader. Yeah. Finally, all Marlowe has is a couple letters and a picture of Curtis's intended. He goes to see her and she's in mourning get-up despite a year having passed already since Curtis's death. And she's obviously deeply in love with Curtis. She keeps praising him. It's obvious she's glad to have someone who knew him to talk to and agree with her about how amazing and wonderful he was. She says she will mourn him forever and ask him what Kurtz's last words were. Huh? He lies and says it was her name. Oh, nice lie. <laughs> I think. She yeah. replies that she knew in her heart it to be true. Oh. Marlowe ends his story here and the narrator remember? <laughs> it was like a narrator for two seconds at the yeah. He looks off into the dark sky over the city which makes the river seem to lead into the heart of an immense darkness. Oh! <laughs> Maybe the true heart of darkness has been Europe all along. Oh, I thought you were going to say the real heart of darkness <laughs> has been inside of us all along. Okay, and that is the end. Oh, really? Of the story. I see, it's very... Mm. Mysterious. Uh, yeah, mysterious. I was really dissatisfied. I <laughs> like, tell me about Kurtz, like, properly. Yeah. <laughs> I want to know more about this big shot, this tap hug. I yeah. guess that's the whole point. You know about him, but you don't yeah. really know him. Like yeah, he's a exactly. figure and not him, the... Yeah. yeah, through everyone else's perception of it. Yeah, it's like he's like God. Yeah. Yeah. Literally. Because like you don't really the know vengeful The vengeful God. But um... So there's um, a critic called Achebe. Or Achebe. A-C-H-E-B-E. Oh, Achebe. who sort of condemns Conrad's Mm. representation of African people Um, sort of a really influential African um, critic of the book who's like Conrad's rejecting colonization but by doing so he's like recycling these ideas of Africa being this dark continent full of savages Mm -hmm. kind of thing why Um, are we surprised? Yeah, so that that was that's sort of a, a significant criticism of the story. It is very it is very critical of colonization, but it's but it's almost like it's seen more of a, more as a waste than as a human atrocity to me. It it almost feels like reading it. It feels more like it feels less Amnesty International and more PETA. Like it feels like <laughs> you know. Oh my goodness! Like it's like. The, the rhetoric is like, oh, how can we treat these poor beasts like this, you know? Instead so of like, maybe we shouldn't. Yeah. Um, yeah, it it's is. It's still super, yeah, um, othering and. Very yeah. much reads as like um, a deep dude book, you know? Yeah, 100%. Very, yeah, uh, those themes of um, like masculinity and, yeah. I don't know, fake gods and. I don't know. What does it mean to be a great man? Yeah, like people it talking about. I know. But yeah, there's like no women, and when they're there, it's, they're like symbols. Does not pass the Bechdel test. 
don't think any women speak at any point during the. Oh no, the, the mistress says something. No, yeah. she doesn't. Oh. Oh, oh sorry, the fiance does. Oh, she the says stuff. The the aunt says some stuff. Yeah, it's just. She said some regrettable stuff. Yeah. Literally, um, it's just Marla going, and then she said some shit. I don't know. Yeah, literally. And he doesn't have a lot of conversations. Just like... And he's like... We talked about things. Yeah. Like, he doesn't do dialogue as much. She's like, he said some shit, but what I speculate is that... <laughs> yeah. What I'm thinking. And he's like, yeah, yeah, whatever. Like, yeah. the Russian guy, yeah. That yeah. Guy. Yeah, I don't know. The impression I got was like, man, colonization is really bad. Yeah. For white people. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. Yeah, it was fine. Yeah, no, not my favorite book, but I wish we could just do and then there were none none, again, like over and over again. Wipe our minds and then I just do it again. It's like who did it? I don't know. (laughs) That's what time travels for. sad this reminds me um so there's this guy on a dating app that has messaged me a couple Mm -hmm. times and he's actually like kind of cute and he's into like bad movies and stuff but um he's five foot two (laughs) and like his head is the size of like an like a man who's like five foot eleven and then his body is really small so he's like an anime character yeah like his 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 shoulders are like really he's like Lady Gaga size. Yeah. I can't date someone a small size. You don't Gaga. want to date someone you could suplex. <laughs> I'm not you. I don't I don't size up all my romantic partners I'm like whether or not I can <laughs> One like One day it's gonna come down to a physical I could, confrontation. <laughs> like I don't size up my physical partners and like I could take them in a fight. Yeah. 